Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Among electric vehicles, one brand springs to mind, Tesla. But over the past few months, there's been a surge in the industry. Tesla wannabes, established car makers, and tech giants, all vying to lead the electrified revolution. And many people remember the physicist Richard Feynman, too few remember his sister Joan, an astronomer of astonishing determination. We reflect on the life of the woman who, perhaps more than anyone else, helped explain the northern and southern lights. First up, though. In America's elections, just six weeks away, the most important thing to be decided is who will win the presidency. At no time before has there been a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, and two agendas for the future. There's never been a vision like this. You have Sleepy Joe and you have Trump. What pundits had been talking a lot less about is which party will end up with control of the Senate, the legislature's upper house. Attention and donations have focused on Senate races this week as a fierce battle begins over the replacement of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No The president planned to use the power the voters gave him to make a nomination. Senators will use the power the voters gave us to either provide or withhold consent as we see fit. Republican senators are keen to get a nomination through before the elections. Earlier in the year, the party seemed set to keep its majority. But President Donald Trump's handling of the pandemic and racial justice protests have opened the possibility that Democrats could take it. In America's rigid two-party system, control of the Senate is a big determinant of what any government can actually get done. But forecasting which party will win control is more complex than it might seem. Predicting races for Congress is a bit more complicated than predicting the race for the presidency. There are 35 different races fought in different states between different candidates over different issues and often using different rules. Dan Rosenheck is The Economist's data editor. I have spent the past few months building a statistical model that seeks to predict the results of this November's congressional elections for the House of Representatives and the Senate in the United States. And so how do you get past those, those complexities to, to, to model it then? 
So our model makes use of a few broad types of information. It first looks at the state of the race nationally using generic ballot polling, as well as the president's approval rating and a few other predictors to say, okay, we think this is going to be a good year for the Democrats or a good year for the Republicans overall. Then it drills down to the state level and says, okay, what did we know about this Senate race before we saw our first poll of that race? Well, we know how it voted in past elections. We know if there's an incumbent or not. We know the candidates' fundraising totals. If there's an incumbent, we know how they've voted in Congress. We know how much experience in politics the candidates have. And then the final step is to blend those prior expectations with whatever the actual polls of the race say. And so it synthesizes all of that information into an overall prediction by exploring 350,000 different scenarios for the Senate and 4.35 million for the House every single day. So it can sort of explore every possible universe we can think of that this election might take and see which scenarios are most probable. But the universe that we're having these elections in is is one that contains what the historical data don't, which is a pandemic. That is a very good point, and it is definitely a weakness. We don't know whether one party or the other will benefit from that, but I think what we can say is that it would need some pretty large effects that would need to be consistent and systematic across states to drive the results far outside the confidence intervals that we would expect based on decades and decades of data on past elections. With those caveats behind us then, what does the model currently predict for November? The model shows that the Democrats are a clear but narrow favorite to win back the Senate. It currently shows that they have a 67% or two in three chance of winning the upper chamber. And it's kind of an interesting path of how they get there because assuming that they lose Doug Jones's seat in Alabama, which is a very conservative state, they need to flip four Republican held seats and they only lead in four states, and they would need to win all four, that would be something of a tall order. And and what are those four states? What are the issues there? So the Democrats have pretty clear leads in Colorado and in Arizona. In Colorado, the Democrats have nominated John Hickenlooper, who is a moderate former governor. He is currently leading in the polls against the Republican incumbent, Cory Gardner. The picture in Arizona is similar. You have a Republican incumbent, and she is now facing an extremely strong Democratic nominee in Mark Kelly, who is an astronaut. He's raised an enormous amount of money. Our model certainly thinks those two are not sure to flip to the Democrats, but 80, 90 percent that range. Then there are two more states in North Carolina. You have a rather unloved Republican incumbent who has been running consistently behind. And then finally, there is Maine, where Susan Collins, the most moderate Republican in the Senate, now faces a very tough challenge from the Speaker of the State House of Representatives, who is up by maybe five, six points on average. So your kind of headline prediction of the Democrats' chances here is based on those four races being cinched up? I mean, is that really so certain? 
So the reason why the model is so bullish on the Democrats is what we're calling the long tail, the donkey's long tail. There is a surprisingly extensive list of sort of second tier Senate races in which Democratic candidates are underdogs, but have a realistic, credible shot to come from behind and win. So that's Iowa, that's Kansas, that's both the seats that are up for election in Georgia, Montana, Alaska, and South Carolina, and even Texas. So in every one of these races, our model thinks it is more likely than not that the Republican will win. However, the odds that the Republicans win all of them and the Democrats win none are not so great. And if the Democrats even score one or two upsets from this very wide list of target states, their position gets a lot stronger. I mean, based on the kinds of things that, that you've been looking at, how do you think the vacancy on the Supreme Court will, will change the race? So if it winds up moving the polls one way or another, our model will see that and it will adapt accordingly. But it doesn't have any sort of prior expectations going in that this is going to be good for one side or the other, given that turnout was already expected to be high and intensity and enthusiasm. If somebody's already 100 percent likely to turn out and vote for their preferred party, you can't make them any more likely to turn out and vote for their preferred party. So I think it's just going to add a bunch of fuel to the fire, but may not have a huge impact on who wins what. And relative to to other congressional races that you've watched, even if not quite so intensely as this time, how important do you think this set of elections is? I think this year's Senate race is definitely about as important as a fight for control of Congress can be. Essentially, there are two paradigms in which Washington can operate, unified or divided government. Either one party controls all three elected arms of the federal government, in which case it can try to do things and occasionally succeed, or it doesn't, in which case it can't. And that is definitely in the balance in this cycle, the gap between the way politics will transpire if Biden wins, if Biden has a Democratic Senate versus if he has a Republican one is enormous. Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Later this week, Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics and the election, takes a deep dive into how Senate dynamics will play into the Supreme Court debate. And it examines the rich, tricky history of interpreting the Constitution. Find Checks and Balance every Friday from your preferred podcast purveyor. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Tesla's evident domination of the electric vehicle industry is, in part, down to the antics, the sheer bravado of its chief executive, Elon Musk. He's brought Steve Jobs' levels of Silicon Valley bluster and PR savvy to the normally sedate automobile industry. 
Yesterday, he gave a presentation at Tesla's annual shareholder meeting, which was followed by a much-hyped event dubbed Battery Day. Outside, attendees honked the horns of their Teslas to show their support. We got the, the Tesla drive-in movie theater, basically. Mr. Musk announced a new generation of batteries, claiming that they'll provide more power and greater range and cost half as much as current cells. I think it may sort of sound a bit silly to some people, but <laughs> this was, this is like, if for people that really know cells, this is a massive breakthrough. The catch is that the batteries won't be ready for three years. Unhappy investors slashed $50 billion from Tesla's market value. Dominant though it may be, Tesla is just one player in a growing, global industry that may reshape parts of economies far beyond the transport sector. Electric vehicles have been on the rise for some years now, but they certainly make up a small proportion of overall sales. But the whole electric vehicle ecosystem has been energised this year by Tesla, whose share price has absolutely skyrocketed. Simon Wright is our industry editor. In August, the value of the company was $450 billion, which is as much as Volkswagen and Toyota put together and then doubled. What about beyond Tesla? What does the whole electric vehicle ecosystem look like? The ecosystem basically consists of four main players. There's Tesla, of course. We've got Tesla wannabes, sort of upstarts themselves, who are copying Tesla from China and America and all over the place. There's the old-fashioned car makers. And then sitting behind that are the big tech companies who have got a finger in lots of pies and watching and waiting and how they can profit from new ways of transport. And so the industry has been, forgive the pun, energized by, by Tesla, but beyond the Elon Musk sheen, what is it that investors are so excited about? What investors see in Tesla is not just their potential to dominate the electric vehicle market, but a wide range of other things that Tesla does as well. Cars are full of electronics these days, but if you buy a car now, all those bits of electronics won't talk to each other. But in a Tesla, they do. So you can offer over-the-air updates, which means the car can improve with age. But Tesla has also got its eye on logistics. It's got its eye on making money from self-driving cars. It's got the data that it can possibly monetize. So there's lots of things that Tesla can draw on for revenues in the future. And this points to the way the industry is changing. Car makers have tried to reinvent themselves as mobility companies because in the future it's not clear whether consumers will buy cars or they will just buy services that get them from A to B. Ride hailing and ride sharing are good examples of those. There's going to be a whole new way of getting around, sort of mobility as a service as it's known in the jargon, that everyone is trying to work out how they can profit from in the future. And how far ahead is Tesla in that game? Tesla are ahead in two main respects when it comes to their electric vehicles. First is the way their battery works with the engine management system and the motors and how that's all put together. They have much better energy density than others have, which means the batteries have more range and are cheaper. But also their software is much better than other car makers. In batteries, some people say they're two or three years ahead, but in software, it could be up to five years before other car makers can catch up with them. Is, is this the kind of industry that that advantage will prove decisive, do you think? I wouldn't write off the established car makers just yet. For example, in China, where half the world's electric vehicles are sold right now, the Chinese government saw electrification as a way to establish its car makers beyond China's borders. 
The internal combustion engine, Chinese car makers would never be able to catch up with the West. But in electrification, they do have that possibility. And Chinese car makers, using the massive home market, their big battery supply chain and all their other advantages, could use that as a stepping stone to export. But what about the big American, the big European car makers? What, what chance do they have here? Car makers are doing several things in order to catch up. One is they're spending a lot more on electric cars. If you look at Volkswagen, for example, and its 60 billion investment in electrification and, and digitization. But in general, R&D on electric vehicles has gone up enormously in recent years. In 2012, it was a small fraction of R&D, and now it's sort of 60% of the R&D budget goes towards electrification. But that's not the only thing that they have to overcome. Car makers have other hurdles, one of which is their workforce, which is uh, heavily unionised in most countries. And with electric vehicles, the transition will cause an upheaval. About half the footprint for car makers these days is engine and transmission factories which won't be required for electric vehicles. They somehow have to wind that down while winding up their production of EVs. And electric vehicles are much simpler than internal combustion engine cars will require far fewer people to assemble them. And it's going to include a lot of job losses. So it's an uphill struggle for the old guard of the motor industry. But but what about big tech? How are they positioned here? The tech giants are sort of sitting back and waiting in many ways. The Chinese tech giants have stakes in Chinese electric car makers, some of the sort of Tesla wannabes that are coming along. Someone like Google is the leader in autonomous vehicle development. Apple is developing software that does that, but also other sort of integrated car software. I think what the tech giants want to do is they want to have a platform that controls the mobility services of the future. So that when you pick up your phone, you'll be able to go from A to B with one tap. It seems this year that everywhere you turn, money is pouring into the electric vehicle ecosystem. Whether or not 2020 has been the pivotal year for electric vehicles is unclear. But the 2020s will certainly be the pivotal decade for the electrification of transport. Thanks for your time, Simon. Thank you. that encapsulated Joan Feynman's life happened around 1963 when she and her elder brother Richard, who was a rising star then in the world of physics and went on to win the Nobel, decided that they would divide the universe between them. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. When they did their great division of the universe, she said, I'm going to take auroras. The auroras, of course, are the northern lights and the southern lights that shimmer so wonderfully in the sky in the higher latitudes. And she said, if I take those, then I'll let you take the rest of the universe. And he said, OK, <laughs> which is a marvellous moment. This arrangement, which sounds like a joke, was actually quite serious. Some years later, Richard was asked by a lab in Alaska if he would look into auroras. And he said, I'll have to ask my sister Joan first. She said no, because they were hers and they were all she wanted. And in any case, he was the one who had started her fascination. When she was very small, he dragged her out of bed one night and took her off to the nearby golf course in Far Rockaway on Long Island and showed her an aurora. 
and he described it as red and gold and yellow, shooting lights, dancing lights all over the sky. He said, nobody knows why they happen. And that question intrigued her and enthralled her almost as much as the lights did, because here was a great mystery, which was to intrigue her for the rest of her life. She wanted madly already to be a scientist and it was around that age when she told her mother about her ambition. And her mother said, women's brains can't do science, they're too feeble. And Joan remembered going to the sofa and simply crying into a cushion at the thought that she couldn't do it. There was always this subtle and not so subtle putting down of her as a woman. She was told she ought to do her thesis on cobwebs because she was likely to find those when she was cleaning the house. Even when she went later on to work in a naval research lab, she was asked if she could dress up in lipstick and heels so that she could try to get more funding for the lab. She focused her work, as she'd always intended to, on auroras, which were very little known and understood. It was known they had some relationship to the sun, but she found out that they occurred when a stream of solar wind came out of the sun and penetrated the Earth's atmosphere. And when the magnetic field within the solar wind intersected with the magnetic field of the Earth. So she had understood auroras. She'd answered Richard's question from that night when they'd been looking at the sky. And as she was doing these studies, she discovered that the shape of the magnetosphere around the Earth, which had always been imagined to be a closed, tear-shaped bubble, was actually open-ended, and the Earth's magnetic field was arranged like a shield. And so she had made this great discovery as well, despite the extreme discouragement she'd met as she was growing up. She went on researching to a very great age and people sometimes wondered why she was still going into the lab when she was 90. And she would answer that there were still so many questions to answer about the sun. Why, for example, had it settled into an 11-year cycle of sunspots or an 88-year milder cycle? Why those strange numbers? Why was it suddenly capable of doing unexpected things? And she called them crazy things because although the sun might appear to scientists to be in a relatively stable phase, to her mind, because she was watching it so closely, it seemed extremely active and unpredictable, variable, and sometimes just downright odd. After all, the sun with one particular ultra-fast ejection of plasma and solar wind could disable the communications on Earth. And with just one fairly sustained bout of laziness, it could turn the whole of Long Island, the whole of that golf course where Richard had told her that nobody knew why auroras happened, the golf course where she'd watched auroras shimmer across the sky. That whole landscape would have suddenly been plunged into ice as it had been 12,000 years before. Anne Rowe and Joan Feynman, who's died aged 93. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.